This podcast is free and it's accessible to everyone thanks to support from listeners like you. If you value this show, please consider supporting its production by donating to our home, KUOW. It only takes a minute to give and you'll be helping to support the production of this podcast. Make a donation at KUOW.org or follow the link in the show notes. And thanks. Welcome to KUOW's Speakers Forum. Filling in for John O'Brien, I'm Kendra Hanna. This episode of Speakers Forum is a difficult but crucial conversation. Authors Grace Toulousen, Kristen Miaris-Young, and Michelle Bowdler act as our guides through discussions of pain, self-care, and a culture that uses shame to keep women in line. This conversation is wide-ranging. It touches on health and internal experiences, as well as the external forces and cruelty that can impact the body. Our three speakers search for ways to move past doubt and silence to find joy in self-ownership. Kristen Miaris-Young is a journalist and essayist. Her debut novel, Subduction, came out in 2020 and received an Independent Book Publisher Award. She also edited the creative nonfiction collection, Seismic, Seattle, City of Literature. Grace Toulousen is currently the Fannie Hurst Writer-in-Residence at Brandeis University. Her 2019 memoir, The Body Papers, won the Restless Books Prize for New Immigrant Writing. Michelle Bowdler has worked in public health for decades. In 2020, her book, Is Rape a Crime? A Memoir, an Investigation, and a Manifesto, was longlisted for a National Book Award. Elliott Bay Book Company presented this conversation on November 9th. Thank you all for being here today. And uh, I just want to say thank you to Elliott Bay Books, and it's going to be a destination of choice as soon as we get ourselves to Seattle. Um, I wanted to say that while our books may have come out during the pandemic, um, I I myself feel just honored that I have had the opportunity, although virtually for some people, um, to have met so many wonderful people this year. And Grace and I knew each other before this um, before this publication year, but uh, Kristen Malaris Young is is new to new a new friend and and a wonderful author and. Just really, really happy to be here tonight and talking about a subject that um, I think we all need to be talking about in 2021, which is investigations of the body and who gets to who gets to own their bodies and the conversations that are happening now and unfortunately that have been happening over many, many years. And we're going to have those conversations through our books. So. Um, we are each going to read for maybe three to five minutes and then um, have a conversation. We do invite you to put questions in the Q&A. And depending on the timing, um, I will either uh, pick those questions out uh, at the time that you, you give them or um, at the end of, our, uh, end of our conversation tonight. So uh, Kristen has agreed to read first, and I believe she's going to read an essay. And so Kristen, I'm going to let you introduce the piece that you plan to read tonight. Um, Thanks, Michelle. As we were kind of moving forward into the introductions, we were talking about some of the people who are here in the um, in the chat or in the, I can see the attendee list. And I just want to put out there, there's some very good poets here. Uh, Suzanne Edison, I see, welcome. Um, Wendy Call, who is one of the uh, first nonfiction writers that my uh, editor at the Seattle PI gave me a book that she had edited and said, study this um, because it will teach you what you need to know to work here. Um, and Matilda Bernstein Sycamore, uh, whose memoir, The Freezer Door, uh, was a book that I reviewed uh, for the Washington Post because it's absolutely brilliant. Um, so there's many more people that I could uh, call out, but I just want to say it really makes me feel good when writers of uh, such quality um, are, are here and part of this conversation um, and will be joining it with their own books. Uh, Jen Soriano has a book coming out uh, soon called Nervous which is going to be um, a wonderful exploration of the many ways in which the body is uh, shot through with pain and also possibility uh, through the legacies of uh, colonialism and the ways that we heal from that. Um, so I do, you can see right over my shoulder, I wrote this book called Subduction. I care about that so much, but for tonight's reading, uh, I wanted to read an abridged section from an essay that is so personal that I haven't posted it, <laughs> even though it's already published um, in a uh, the fall 2021 issue 
of Fiction International. And this essay is called Our Lady of Perpetual Self-Loathing. I'm trying to learn how to take up space without remorse. Quote, we protect the truth primarily by telling the truth about ourselves, Elena Ferranti wrote, later adding, speaking with fierce candor, not to others, but to ourselves, sometimes absolutely saves us, end quote. Life is full of deferred pain for women. In my own life, if I had reacted strongly every time someone wronged me, I would have no time for my work. And though I've excised from this essay those moments where I have been spoken to, um, in such a way as to cause me to reflect for decades upon the meaning of the relationships that bore those conversations. I will follow with a quote from Simone de Beauvoir. Quote, the aging woman well knows that if she ceases to be an erotic object, it is not only because her flesh no longer has fresh bounties for men. It is also because her past, her experience, make her willy-nilly a person. She has struggled, loved, willed, suffered, enjoyed on her own account. This experience is intimidating, end quote. Lately, I've been reading the work of menopausal women. Guide me, I plead. I began with Darcy Steinke's Flash Count Diary. She expressed an idea I had also heard from Sharon Olds. These gorgeous crones said that once they closed down the need to be beautiful, they opened the beauty around them. It would be completely possible, if not perhaps advisable, for me to stop my pretense, to stop plucking and shaving and sculpting, and instead gray into my girth, like my husband. He said as much. Don't believe him, I was told by a close feminine advisor. He only says that. What was meant? Doing so would make me vulnerable to abandonment. Quote, I'd argue that it's not an early individuation that exhausts women, but instead the continual stress of maintaining and holding up our femininity, end quote, Steinke. What to do when you store the religious poison of the patriarchy and its voracious insistence on a prepubescent shape in your own fertile body? Goddesses were once denoted by folds of flesh. This constant self-hatred, a quotidian abnegation, is the most Catholic thing about me, aside from blasphemy. I don't even believe in a God, but I do sense that ingratitude for good health dares the evil eye. Once I stood on a small, hot stage and read an essay I had written while pregnant. I had been carrying the same glass of champagne for most of the evening. When I got to the part in which I disclosed my gestational state, in an animal way, I perceived intense discomfort in the audience. I realized that even with my carefully chosen flattering dress, people could think that I was pregnant as I had not specified when the piece was written. In the sauna-like atmosphere of this brick room, I stopped my reading and issued a disclaimer. I'm not pregnant, I said, adding, plus I didn't like how the bartender shook his eyes during my opening line. My friends in the audience startled, amused. I began again, nailed it that second time. Despite the heat, that essay brought a crescendo of emotion into the people who were there. I could sense it. Later, I questioned myself, even when another friend said I must have felt a wave of judgment. I must have sensed an accumulation of microexpressions in aggregate, for I responded intuitively, without thinking. Is that why I recoil at the mirror? Responding not to the flaws, but the ugliness of being someone who seeks them out. You must think I consider nothing but my softened body and wrinkled face. I do things. I won't list them here. God knows I spend too much time keeping up my bio. Never enough. And if you saw me, you might be shocked by how much I've made of minor degradations, because the truth is, I'm beautiful, and most people tell me so. But there I go again, taunting fate unto disfigurement. Maybe I can work right my way through it. Bear with me. This is worth writing about. I was implanted with self-hatred to keep me in line. There. This essay just got bigger. I want to fight this culture, but I've made shackles of my self-regard. For some people, self-care would be a revolutionary act. The rest of us hone ourselves in lieu of bettering society. So what would it mean to let myself go? What shall I relinquish first so that I might have such clarity as de Beauvoir? I would choose to forsake shame if I had the choice in the matter. Focusing on my flaws has kept me from shining my light on the world in a fundamental way. 
instructed that a woman is a currency devalued by time. I cannot be sure whether my kin wished to impart that a woman truly loses worth with age or that society perceives her devaluation as real and therefore I should keep myself in good shape or else. Being ugly meant losing everything. What am I trying to say? I follow rules that I don't believe in. People get shifty when I mention my misgivings about my appearance and aging, but I know, I know from the clinical way women regard their reflections that they wither themselves with scrutiny. We want to age well without ceding the authority we gain from the very years that thickened us. So shall I execute a graceful dismount from this floor routine? As a Latinx writer, I model the painful education of taking up space without apology. Shall I tell you that I've changed the metric in midlife? That I have studied ancient female intellectuals across the millennia and in so doing freed myself to worship my own body? Or should I be honest and say that I delighted myself by shaving off 10 pounds and that I look forward to weighing myself after my daily morning workouts? My dear readers, this moment is no performance. This is me getting as real as I can for your redemption. What kind of revolution would you like? And for whom? Does it start with me? Or is it you? Thank you. Amazing. Go ahead, Grace. Okay, I, I didn't know if you were um, coming in. So I'll be, be reading next. Um, I wanna say thank you to Karen and Rick and Elliot Bay Books. I'm incredibly honored to be reading with both you, Kristen and Michelle. There's ways that both of your work has, um, and the courage in it and the bravery in it has helped me be more brave with my work. And I really appreciate that. Even in this moment tonight, I, I feel that. Um, so I'm really glad to be thinking about this theme of investigations of the body. Um, I thought a lot about this experience um, that we've had in the world and, and what we've been writing about, which is this experience about of our own bodies and the taboos about the body. And it's a strange way to put it, um, you know, experiences of our own bodies, because aren't we our bodies? But from as early as I can remember, when I was even learning the names of the parts of my own body, I'd realized that there were certain parts that were different um, and the ways that they were named were really different. And already then I started to feel this distance and separateness from my own body and to experience, have experiences of the body rather than just being in my body. I started to feel it didn't belong to me anymore. And then even as a teenager through ways that were um, direct and indirect kind of messages, I realized there were ways that I could cause assault um, depending on what I put on my body. Um, and so there's all these ways I felt I wasn't in charge and in control of my body. And in writing about these experiences that I was, I'm not supposed to write about, um, including naming parts of the body that I'm not supposed to name, I found a kind of power there. And I'm glad that I have other people um, to put my work next to and to also have my book and this work um, be in company with that up with your work. So, so thank you. Um, I'm going to read from a part of the book I, I don't think I've ever read from, so, but I'll do it here tonight with you. Um, okay. Do my, do my grandfather's years as a colonial subject explain him? Perhaps his trauma, among other factors, created a desire to feel strong, and he became addicted, getting his fix from dominating bodies less powerful than his. And yet, none of this justifies what he did. I experienced sexual assault as a force that separated me from everyone else. I am still surprised when I am noticed. I came to believe that I was invisible, that I could disappear at will, but it was the other way around. My grandfather disappeared me. Perhaps he did not even experience my body as separate from his, and therefore believed he had the right to touch my thigh as if it were his own. Even as I write this, 
so many years after the fact. I worry about the repercussions of telling. I'm not afraid of falling apart by remembering, but I am scared of how this information can be used against me. Who will never speak to me again after I've told this story? Every time I write about this part of my life, I get a rash. I am covered in small itchy bumps on my trunk and arms and thighs, all the places where he touched. At 11, when I bleed for the first time, I saw the first drop of blood on my panties and wiped it away and continued on to school. I had interpreted the term period quite literally to be a small drop of blood, the size of a dot. I was unaware that the bleeding would continue to pulse through me until I was sitting in a puddle of my own blood in a classroom of snickering fifth graders. The story of me walking across the classroom to ask the teacher if I could go to the nurse was the detail that everyone remembered about me until I graduated high school. I was that girl with the blood on her pants. When I got home, my mother gave me a cotton pad and then blocked the bathroom door to tell me cryptically that I now possessed a treasure that I needed to protect from those who would want to take it from me. I had no idea what she was talking about. I didn't need metaphors like the birds and the bees. I needed direct, scientifically accurate information about what was happening to my body. Thank you. So thank you, thank you both so much. These are so powerful and such incredible writing. And I, I, um, I look forward to uh, joining you in conversation. But I just, I'm so moved, and now I'm supposed to read. So I'm gonna try to do that. Um, I'm gonna read a very short piece that, um, you know, a lot of us I think have been told in the work that we do that. Our books are hard, they're challenging, they discuss difficult uh, issues. And I, 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 that's a norm I want to challenge a little bit uh, tonight in having these conversations. And um, I want to read you a piece uh, in my book that really uh, captures um, love and, and, um, and trust and how hard that is to do when you're somebody who has experienced trauma and the ways that it can be complicated. And it has, uh, it's the moment in the book before I decide to tell Mary who is listening in tonight and who is my, my wife. And, and at the time was not yet my wife. Um, and I was going to tell her what happened to me. And uh, here's here's the introduction, and I didn't have it printed out, so I'm going to look down a little bit when I read. It's a very short passage. Mary had the perfect imperfection, a small space in between her two front teeth, like Lauren Hutton. It was exactly what I needed at first, a flaw to help me focus my fear of feeling happy. Happy felt like another solar system a curious and desired yet unwelcome destination. Nothing good could come of wanting something because everything was always taken away. I was not at ease, but hid it well. Mary's optimism was deep enough to hold us both while I adjusted to loving and being loved. So there sat that small space. I could try my hardest to see the beautiful smile that held it, or I could just see the space. We bought a house, made financial decisions about each of our graduate programs, and then had kids. And as I allowed each happiness in, I carefully collected all the imagined imperfections and held them in my hand like a snow globe, shaking it about wildly, the flaws overtaking the scene, and then settling down, harmless. When Mary was in her 40s, she decided to close up the space by wearing invisible braces for a year. She said she was tired of wearing her childhood poverty on her face. By then, I didn't worry that what I would do without it. It had served us both rather well in a life we had built together in spite of the odds. 
In those early days, I was still unsure about what might come next and always expected something bad around the next corner, but worked hard with Mary to construct our brand new life, slowly and with intention. Part of that life necessitated a telling, a telling I kept to myself over the last few years as if silence might scrub it away. It didn't. Instead, I tried looking at it again through the prism of the person I loved. I'll stop there. So thank you. And um, I am going to start, I've, I've printed out some questions to help me be less nervous. And um, I'm going to find them. So tonight, we are focusing our questions on investigations of the body and all of our books and much of our writing address this theme throughout. And so I wanted to start with a quote from one of my favorite writers. Um, Poet Adrian Rich writes in Of Women Born, there's nothing revolutionary whatsoever about the control of women's bodies by men. The woman's body is the terrain on which patriarchy is erected. So I'm wondering if these words resonate with you and how do you think about this concept or do you in your own work or other writers that you respect? And if we begin our investigation or conversation tonight with the all too common reality that our bodies are sometimes seen or too often seen as objects for others to use at their will, how does our writing perhaps serve as an antidote to this misogynistic norm? So if either of you want to speak to that, that would be great. Yeah, um, I, I can go ahead. I, I'm thinking about like all the the different readings um, from tonight and, and um, you know, taking them in and, you know, they're, they're incredible. So, um, you know, this is a great quote. Um, and, you know, one of the, the, I sort of mentioned this earlier, but I first learned about my body in terms of rules and in how, what I should wear, how I should have my legs. I mean, there's even a saying that I heard repeated um, when I, when my nieces and my nieces were, were getting older, which was something about like, close your books, which they, so it was like, close your knees. Um, I, but I, but I think about this, I'm like, wait, why is your body a book? Um, but there's this idea of like, you know, there's ways that you have to present yourself and, and hold your body in um, because that's the rule because, because what if you sat with your legs open, then what, um, you know, and, and like, so then what happens? I mean, I just think, okay, so you, so you sit with your legs open, like big deal. Um, but obviously there's, there's more to that. And there is this form of control. And if you don't follow that instruction, well, then, you know, you must be at fault for, for what you've inspired. Right. So there's like no way around eventually getting blamed for whatever it is that's going to happen to you. So it just seemed like there was, um, yeah, there's this, there's just no way out and there was no way to, to, um, to be good enough um, with all the different rules and, and norms and, and cultural practices that we were supposed to follow. And some of them were contradicting each other. It was all like incredibly confusing. I always tried to be a good student who listened all the time um, to rules. And so, you know, it was incredibly confusing to me. And this quote by Rich that you read, um, Michelle, I, um, is incredible. His, you know, um, yeah, like this is where these, these kinds of beliefs um, about um, women and where patriarchy is played out is, is um, this terrain of our bodies. So it's totally apt to read that tonight. Yeah. Thank you, Grace. Kristen, did you want to add some thoughts to that? Absolutely. Because actually I just was um, flickering back to a memory of being in school. I think it was also uh, the fourth grade or fifth grade and they, they had, we had a school assembly and then they asked all the boys to leave. And then they instructed the girls who were remaining um, that we had to remember to close our legs because we were uh, showing parts of ourselves. We didn't, that the male teachers did not want to see. So there was literally a uh, institutionally sponsored widespread public shaming of little girls for where the gazes of the teachers were meandering. So it starts so young, you know, and that was even a separate school from, God, I remember what, 
one kid, uh, he tried to kiss me. So I need him in the balls. And then I got in trouble. I mean, literally he had his buddy holding my hands behind my back and there he's trying to kiss me. And I take them both out, you know, they're, they're on the floor, like rolling. And then I have to go sit on the curb while they're get like the nurse's attention, you know? And I was like, what? And, it, and you only kind of like realize as you get older. So, I mean, I felt that some, I felt the intense and unjustness of that situation, but how it was iterative through the many institutions um, that I have uh, been a part of, um, academic or otherwise. Um, so I was thinking about this as well in terms of the body. Um, uh, Grace and Michelle, both of your books talk about the ways that uh, patriarchal forces control the body of documentation around a body that controls where that body can go or how it is recognized by the system. And that the uh, the violence of that control reminds me of, of a concept by Sadia Hartman called the violence of the archive. So, you know, what is missing is, in fact, um, a very real violation. And I thought of that um, so much during your investigation, Michelle, of where what happened to your case and why was it discarded? And uh, without giving away what the, you know, one diligent decades later, detective said um, the excuses for that absence, for that violence uh, was so paltry uh, that it showed very clearly uh, to what extent your corporeal body was devalued, as well as the body of evidence that should have been preserved and then brought into court. And um, to the extent that uh the patriarchal control extends also to the body of work that we as women can produce. You know, I see our work as a way of pushing out that silence and creating a presence where there has been an absence, because if we don't fill that void that has been literally created by erasing, you know, the truths of our women's lives, then they will say that we accepted what happened and that it was actually for our betterment. Um, and so, and, and it's so interesting how for me as a writer and also as a, uh, a daughter and, um, as a mother, you know, sometimes to speak, you feel like you are the, you are being made into the violent force, right. Just to speak the truth that everyone already knows. Um, and that when naming a truth that is shared, but tacit, is violence, when that's considered to be violence, then you know you're in a highly corrupted environment. And to the extent that it's possible, you know, whether through investigative journalism or memoir or fiction, to create a terrain where more people feel comfortable moving into that terrain and filling it with their voices, then I actually do believe in the promise of literature, that it can, you know, make for a better world, even if uh, we continuously have to tell these stories that you know, I feel like a lot of times, like they're extruding like shrapnel out of my body. <laughs> I'm like, Ugh, where did this shard come from? You know, um, but I've been grateful to be able to build a body of work and then to bring it to public um, with people like you. So. Yeah, thank you for that. And I, I, I just wanted to add to that, that what I what I've noticed as well is that the subjects that we talk about themselves, if they are about our experiences or our bodies or our lives, are often diminished in ways that other subjects are not, you know, that these stories are a dime a dozen, that these stories have been told that there is oldest time. And it's, it's a ruse. It's a way to say uh, what, what your experience is and what you're talking about isn't important. And, you know, just on the news this week, there was some, I, I won't bother mentioning this person by name, but um, you know, going on TV, somebody who wants to probably run for president in two years talking about, you know, the, the you know, women's attack on masculinity that must be addressed, <laughs> that um, that's really the problem, that there's an attack on masculinity. And that's why there's all these things that happen, um, this violence and, and, and all the things that happen. It's because masculinity is under attack and and therefore they, they, people have to fight back against that. And so anyway, um, I, I could go too far astray, but, um, I have another question, but there is a question in the, in the chat that I, in the Q and A that I want to, that I want to get to, cause I think it's important and it's relevant. Um, 
Do you think others calling you brave diminishes your experience? I think your words might be necessary to surviving to being alive and in that way brave, but also impelled to expression, a kind of do or die need. Um, and I'm wondering what you think about that. I, I have my own strong feelings about that word, but I'd love to hear from, uh, from you all as well. I mean, I don't know, Michelle, I want to hear your strong feelings. Okay. All right. So, okay. So um, I think that um, I always try to say that if people want to use a word, I'm not going to, I'm not going to say, oh, I, I hate that word and don't, don't call me that. I feel like people have their own reason for finding words powerful or meaningful. For myself, um, I've, I've often rejected that word because it felt like I was then acquiescing to something that I never wanted to have happen to me. And if I survived it and people called me brave, it was a way to feel like somehow we were all letting that experience itself be let off the hook. And that if you could tell people that they were brave or that they were survivors, um, it created a, a legend of, of, of heroism that, that I didn't, that I didn't care for. Um, but I also know that I've worked really hard to, be able to survive and to get to a point where I could speak uh, my own truth to power, as it were, and to write this book. And I'm really proud of that. So um, I have a mixed, I have a mixed uh, feeling towards that word. I'm just wondering if, if you've had that experience as well. Yeah. I mean, I, I, this is like the, the, um, the notion of like victim or survivor and like using yeah. those terms as well. Um, and I guess there's, for me, it's thinking about it internally or externally, like inside when I'm talking to myself, sometimes I need to tell my, tell myself, like, you are brave. Like you can show up to this thing, you know, you've survived. Like I have to talk to myself in this way. Um, but in terms of um, the question, it was about others calling us, uh, us this. And, you know, and I think maybe that is, different. And, you know, and, and what you're talking about, Michelle, with, um, you know, the power of, of the choice of either of those words of survivor and brave from other people. And, you know, of course, I don't want um, these experiences to be diminished. And I do want it to be recognized that we were victimized, like someone did something to us. And, and that's, that's where the attention should be, because then, then there's a perpetrator involved. It's not just like focusing on us who survived it, it was like, no, actually someone did something horrible and there should be attention there as well because that's, it was a crime and violent and, and all of that. So um, yeah, I'm still like really flip-floppy on it because I have to talk to myself in a certain way um, with some of those words. But I appreciate being able to talk about it and complicate it a little more. Yeah, I think it's a great question. So thank you to the person who asked it. Christian, do you have any thoughts to add or should we? Yeah, I mean, it's interesting because I remember one time I conducted like a year long investigation of the disappearance and death of this Blackfeet actress named Misty Upham, who was an absolutely fantastic actress who appeared um, with Julia Roberts and Meryl Streep in, um, you know, August, Osage County. Um, And I remember I was interviewing this incredible lawyer uh, named Sarah Deere, who wrote a book called The End of Rape. Um, and I asked her if there were any, I will never forget this moment. Uh, I asked her if there are any characteristics that she could share with me, um, that were commonalities among women who had been, uh, persecuted, uh, with sexual abuse. Um, and she told me, she told me that I was asking the wrong question that I needed that the people who you need to be looking for commonalities between were the perpetrators who had certain profiles that needed to be understood better. So the focus on the characteristics of someone who has endured uh, this kind of trauma uh, was, um, although it could seem like an empathetic focus, 
um, actually diverted the conversation from the action point that was made possible by the survival um, and the ability to um, to like to point out um, the person that needed to be persecuted. Um, and for me personally, you know, I've had a number of uh, advisors who um, have not uh, physically assaulted me, but have uh, tried to, uh, I would say, rape my work. Um, and so one of them, um, I was at Harvard and my, uh, my advisor at that time, um, whose name was Jorge Dominguez, uh, he's one of the foremost uh, scholars of Cuba in the world. Um, and uh, I remember the Chronicle of Higher Education did an investigation of this person because he had relentlessly harassed women for decades. And the person who told me about this um, handed me this New York Times article about it while we're at this public dinner, you know? And so I get the New York Times article and to be frank and clear, Jorge Dominguez never harassed me, right? Um, but the person who gave me the article was counting on in some ways that that was true. And I said to him, you know, you should have waited to provide this to me in private because you don't know what happened. And so I may never have disclosed what happened. He's like, oh, that would never happen to you. I said, excuse me, what do you mean? You know, and uh, the presumptions around both who can uh, survive such an experience who can speak about that experience and the characteristics that they may possess, which may distinguish them from people who have survived silently uh, are all, as you say, need to be nuanced. Um, there is in a lot of ways uh, a, a real courage in surviving in place in silence. And so many women are forced through circumstance to continue to uphold the families that and systems and institutions which have uh, disadvantaged them. Um, and the courage and bravery that it's required to remain there at that moment, in my mind, can be equal to and even more than those of us who have been able to uh, escape and, and move through into other more healthier environments. And so the idea of bravery as a distinguishing factor from other people who've gone through this is, I think, uh, partly what you may have been speaking to, Michelle and Grace. Um, so thanks for that question. Yeah, no, thank you very much. Thank you both for that. those great responses. Um, okay, I'm going to ask another question, and I'm happy to also take questions in the Q&A. Um, so I guess when I think about books or essays that cover themes of trauma, or assault, um, I tend to think about concepts of shame, silencing, numbing, um, a very clear before and after in terms of identity that can seem essential to describe the pain of sexual assault or, or abuse or harassment. And in the telling or the writing, there can be some, uh, some empowerment, some strength, um, Although I think, Kristen, you have a really good point that sometimes people who don't speak are just as strong, and I don't want to diminish that. Um, I also, the, the question, though, has to do with how writing about trauma is not catharsis, which uh, T. Kara Madden really takes straight on in an essay that's in Literary Hub that's really, really highly thought of. And I wanted to say that both of your books are so expertly crafted and gorgeously written. And I, I wanted to say that directly because I think that, like I said before, sometimes writing about these themes can be used to somehow minimize the impact of the stories themselves. And so I just, I didn't know if you wanted to speak to that theme in your own writing and the idea of crafting a story, even, um, even if it's about uh or, or deals with uh, trauma as a topic, um, or if there's other writings that you really admire that that also take on that. So you could talk about any piece of that that you'd like. Okay, so thank you. That's such a, a great uh, question and, and thing to think about. Um, and also thank you for your compliment too. Um, so because I've, 
when I was doing research for my book, I came across old notebooks that was in, in writings that I did from um, high school, from the time that, that it, was it was still happening to me. And I realized I was, I was remembering how I felt when I was writing those pieces. And it was really different from the reasons why I was writing it um, decades later. Um, and so I think when I was first writing about it, I was looking for someone to pay attention and for someone to save me. And when I was writing it later and I had a, I had read more, I had practiced more as a writer, there was ways that I had control over the material of my own life that just felt like I had more mastery over what I decided to express and what I left out and what I kept in. And so, um, I mean, it seems like a strange way to think about the, the, your own experiences about your own life, but it is really how I experienced it. It's like, okay, this was like some of the worst things of my life. And yet um, now that I've practiced more as a writer, I know what I want to express and I have the tools and the skills to express it in the way that I would like. And that way I feel like my intent and impact is more in line um, in, in what I want the work to do. So it, it, it did not feel cathartic to me, but felt more like an action um, or an expression um, that had more of my like agency behind it, as opposed to like, here's my story, someone help me, which is what I really did feel like in the beginning. And I did need help um, in the beginning. Um, and that's, that's what I needed and looked for. Um, I would say for me, um, when I first began writing about trauma, it was almost exclusively about the trauma of other people. And I was writing through the institutional authority of the third person with a masthead, the news, you know, newsroom behind me um, that would be associated with the publication. Um, so that conveys its own kinds of responsibilities and pitfalls and possibilities uh, for uh, justice and um, but also for exploitation. And so when I began to write about trauma through the lens of fiction, I wanted there to be the possibility for moral ambiguity, which is so often missing from narratives of journalistic narratives um, or narratives designed to elicit one specific response from a reader. Um, and that response may be completely necessary and appropriate to that situation and to that circumstance of that piece of writing. Uh, but in subduction, for example, um, there are scenes of uh, intense emotional rupture and sexual violence that are highly morally ambiguous and involve a deep coda of um, self-hiding and, um, and deception uh, from all of the parties involved. And that was something that I felt was important because I wanted people, instead of to judge these characters, I wanted them to have to think through the characters and to break open um, almost like a prism, um, scattering the light, break open what seemed to be uh, something clear and find all of the nuances and shades that were within it. And it's my belief that if we can create that kind of moral complexity in like thinking of readers, then it might perhaps um, dislodge them from the feeling of rectitude uh, that seems to be characterizing particularly American thought um, the more uh, we move into this era. And so it's risky as a fiction writer to write uh characters who do morally ambiguous or wrong things without presenting uh, the specter of judgment on the page for them. And yet I felt that was my artistic calling uh, within subduction, um, which is different than some of the other kinds of writings that I've done in the past and will probably do in the future. Yeah, yeah thank you. And I, I just want to add one comment to that because when I was writing uh, my book, I was a brand new writer and I really felt like I needed to figure out how to tell a story with a little bit of distance. Um. And I, my instructor was um, Alex Marzano Lesnovich. And I remember that they always said um, during all our classes, they would say, so what is the character Michelle doing or the character? It was, it was, there was a distance so that 
you know, you, it was creative nonfiction and you could tell your story. Um, but you were also trying to actually create, create some art. You were trying to create something that would be interesting for people to read. And that wasn't just a, it wasn't a journal anymore. It was something else. And, um, I never forgot that. And I think that thinking about it in that way, it really helped, really helped me write it. Um, I wanted to say we we it, we have about seven minutes left. There may be a question. Yes, there is. Um, and depending on how long this goes, this may be our last question. And um, we'll see we'll see how we're doing. So thank you so much for this powerful discussion. I'm wondering what else all of you are working on now, and how does that work continue investigations of the body, if at all? Okay, I think that's a great question. And. Uh, some of us are nervous to answer. <laughs> Who'd Does like to go first? Go, I mean, you want to go first, Michelle? <laughs> okay. Um, I will. So I'm not really sure. Like I, I do have a fictional idea that I, I don't think I know how to write fiction. So I'm not really sure I can uh, write the book that I have in mind. But I, I do have, um, and I think some of my relatives are listening in tonight, I, I have about half a book written that I initially was writing when I wrote this book because I was trying to understand concepts of resilience and, and how it was that I had met a lot of rape survivors who I admired and thought that they were all doing great because they knew who their perpetrator was after delayed rape kit testing um, helped them. And I thought, oh, they have closure, they have peace of mind, and I don't. And and yet they would come up to me and say things like, you know, how did you, how did you build a relationship? How did you wind up going to graduate school? And they had questions for me and I didn't know the answer. And so I started, I started before this book even took place, started writing essays about my, my family and my ancestors, some of whom I knew one single story about, and that was it. And, and I, I'm trying to now turn those series of essays into a book. I think that a lot of us come from really a series of fractured stories because our relatives immigrated, their names were changed. They went to five different countries when they had to leave their country. Um, and sometimes the one story that we have gets told so many times that it feels like a, a caricature of someone, or you have one picture and you don't even know who's in the picture, but you're told that those are your great grandparents and you're, you don't even know anybody's name. And I kind of want to explore how people with trauma often have a sense of fractured identity and of a before and after through looking at some of those stories and the meaning that they have in my life and how that'll come together. We'll have to see. So that's what I'm working on now. Do you have a working title? Um, it's from a Bob Dylan song. I'll look for you there or I'll, I'll look, I'll see you there. I'll look for you there. And actually there's a line in that little section about Ashtabula, which was a town that we lived in for a while. So I'll look for you there. Nice. Yeah. yeah we'll see. How about you? How about you all? Grace, would you like to go? Sure. Um, hi, Jen. I can't wait for your book. Um, <laughs> So I am working, I thought I was working on one thing, but then I started working on something else. And um, the thing I'm working on now, I, it's a novel, I come calling it The Day of the Goat. And it takes place all in one day. And it's kind of based on my father's friends who all um, bought houses on the same street in Cape Cod. So it's all these Filipino immigrant doctors who bought these houses. And um, it just happens to be, it like takes place all in one day. Um, and it's loosely based on them. I've made like, you know, most of it up. It's fiction for sure. Uh, but I'm having a lot of fun. I didn't expect this book to come out and there it is. So, um, so it's, it's fun to be writing it. I have like, I think I'm on 98,000 words right now. And I'm, once I get to a hundred thousand, I think I'll like, I'll rewrite it. Um, but I'm just trying to go forward with it at this point. Wow. Thank you. These both sound fantastic. Um, I'm excited about this. Um, so I I have an essay collection that I have 
finished, I think. Um, and it deals with uh, a lot of the ways that I have um, traced a path for myself that wasn't the one that was planned for me. Um, and yet is actually a well-trodden path. If only I had known whose feet to be looking for, you know? Um, and so, uh, as part of that, there's this other investigation I've been doing of, um, this pagan mother goddess cult, uh, that was the primary, um, predecessor for Christianity throughout the Roman empire and I mean, I had never been taught that the biggest godhead of the, you know, the Western world was a woman, you know, uh, and I was like, well, what else have I not been told? And it turns <laughs> out it's a lot. Um, so looking through, um, Ursula K. Le Guin talks about it as that you're, you know, looking into history that goes back that many thousands of years is like taking a flashlight on a highway. Um, you really can't see anything until it basically is hitting you. Um, and so kind of peering through the works and also the obfuscations of so many male historians, especially Roman historians, because their prejudices that they would impose upon their subject matter was so real that you can barely see it. Um, and so learning to find kind of the bones of the story um, that are almost always buried uh, beneath the terrain that you can see um, and uh, trying to explore that through a series fiction. There's It's a hybrid text. So part of it is uh, fictional um, and based in this mother goddess cult uh, in uh, Roman times um, in Northwestern Spain, where um, part of my family is from. And then the other part of it is me now, the actual I, um, researching for archaeological evidence of this cult with my family, a small little family in tow, while also kind of peeling back the layers of my uh, family's migration uh, through from Spain under Franco uh, to Cuba then we had to leave there. Um, and then finally, uh, to where we are today. Um, so it's going to take a while. Um, I've been researching it since 2016, but you know, who's got, I've got all the time in the world. Right. So (laughs) we hope so. Well, I think our, I think our time is just about up, but I really just personally want to thank both of you and Elliot Bay books. Thank you, everybody. Thank you. Thank you. Good night. Good night. Elliott Bay Book Company presented this conversation on November 9th. To find the full event and other great Seattle area talks, go to our website, kuow.org slash speakers. While you're there, subscribe to our podcast and share your comments. Thanks for listening. Tune in again soon.